Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, your host. Thank you very much for inviting me into your home again this week. And this week we have, um, well, I have discussed the topic of coercive control at length on my channel. And of course, we've gone into all the details and uh, definitions and descriptions of how this applies in various situations, especially in cultic situations. But for quite some time, I've wanted to expand this conversation beyond cults or, you know, gang or group situations to also, you know, the, there's the dynamics of the one-on-one situation. And we've, and, and this has been something we've talked about, of course, where the similar control patterns or coercive, you know, control or coercive persuasion or, you know, the, the, the terminology for this are also utilized in domestic partnerships or in domestic situations and that they can be just as abusive and just as traumatizing as a cult situation. And, um, and there are other areas, other places where coercive control is utilized against a person where they don't see it coming. And one of those places, and I actually wrote about this in a paper I wrote when I was doing my master's program, is in a therapeutic situation when you have a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist or other uh, therapy authority who takes advantage of that authority and utilizes that to take advantage of people under them who are coming to them for help. This is a problem. This is a situation that's been going on for quite some time in and out of diff- different groups. And so, um, so we're going to talk about that today. I am bringing on as my guest this week, um, Emma Stevens. Now she has written two books about two different situations where she has encountered abusive, traumatic, coercive situations uh, as an adoptee growing up in a in a traumatic. Uh, family situation, and then connecting with a psychologist who did not necessarily have her best interests at heart. So, Emma, welcome to my show. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. It's yeah. great to be here. Thank you for reaching out and letting me know about your story. And um, and I wanted to you know feature it here on my podcast because I think it goes right in line with uh, all the things we discuss about uh, coercive control and, and how that is, uh, it can negatively impact a person's life. So you've had, unfortunately, a couple of bad experiences with this. I guess we might want to start at the beginning or how do you usually want to go into talking about yourself and your story here? Um, well, I think about I, for my story personally, I'd have to start with that in utero, I was an unwanted baby. And that was not unusual for, I was in the 60s, and a lot of mothers that were unwed, they were shamed by their pregnancy, and they pretty much were coerced into relinquishment. And so the, all of the, I was swimming in toxic wa- waters of cortisol and stress hormones. And so I really believe that it started for me in utero. Then when I was born, I was relinquished, uh, severing from, you know, the, the only thing I've ever known. And so I think that was developmentally where it started for me to, um, to change and not really follow the normal course because I'm not with my mother. And that's just, you know, by nature, that's what we need. Then I was given to a family that adopted me and my adoptive brother. um, And they just were not real kind people. They were not child centered. They hadn't solved their 
own infertility troubles. And so all their inadequacies were placed on my brother and myself, and we were expected to be the people that we were purchased to be. And if we tried to be anyone else, then there was a lot of hell to pay. So I used to conform at a very early age. Right, right. That's a damn shame. You know, parenting is a a difficult task at best, but when you have these like weird ideas that children are property or that, you know, they're there to be molded into little versions of you rather than treated as independent human beings with, you know, their own minds and their own uh, will and desires, it's very, very unfortunate. I, I don't want to get all ideological here, but it is a point that uh, that there seems to be this idea in the United States, especially with the whole anti-abortion stance, that, well, you know, adoption, adoption, adoption. And it's not really thought of very much about how that's actually going to affect the, the baby involved, the, the child in, involved yeah. in that, you know. So you make some uh, good points there about things that people should consider on that topic. Yeah, and I would also offer that if someone wants to know about the adoptee experience, they should probably ask an adoptee. But, it, you know, because that little baby grows up. Right. And it's funny how people don't really want to hear what an adoptee has to say because we'll immediately be called selfish, ungrateful, didn't you know that you were saved? And all, you know, adoption can be beautiful, but all adoptees are asking is let's look at, not only the pretty table setting that's on top, let's look underneath and tell the whole story of of the whole thing of what um, a person goes through that is that has lost their family, their birth family on the day they were born. And yeah. that's a grief that we need to be able to, to um, recover from and be told that you should grieve. It is a sad thing. Yeah, absolutely. I and I can empathize to the degree that my brother is adopted, and and he had, you know became uh, very upset and concerned about this at a, at an early age when he was informed and tracked down his uh, birth mother and got the situation there, which was not necess- not we're not going to get into all the details of that, but it it was not a a, a wonderful situation, and. Um, and just watching and observing and trying to support him through that was a was a a conflicting thing because there was a, from from my end there was a little bit of a of an attitude kind of similar to what you described to you know to my little bit of embarrassment here right now because it was kind of there like well what was inadequate about our family what's the problem and and not and having to kind of put myself in his position and go wait a second now you know I'm the one who was the biological child there he's not and and there is a separation there is a an, an issue there and um, and and learning and growing with him in that process was actually very educational for me. So I, you know, so I can empathize to that degree in, in understanding that. And you wrote a whole book about it, this the the book, The Gathering Place. I did, I did, and I use a lot of EMDR. I talk about how that helped me um, kind of uh, integrate my early memories with my present memories and kind of do away with those erroneous beliefs I've always had about myself that have been limiting. Like I'm a bad baby. I'm not, you know, worthwhile. My mother gave me away. And um, really it had very little to do with the adoptee and it had more to do with the situation that was at hand. It was chaos. And so 
I internalized the chaos thinking it must be me. So as soon as I used modalities like EMDR, it helped me really get back on path of saying, that's not mine to own. And in the book, I also use IFS was internal family systems, where in the book I weave around going back to my younger parts and having conversations with them and giving them what they needed at that time, the understanding and telling them future you gets to figure this out and you're going to be okay. And so I think that's what makes the book really lovely is that at the end, it's not just a sad book, it's reconciliation of how to rise out of it and go to a different spot and out of a broken story and into the story I want to write for myself. That's really nice. That's really good because that because that does go towards you know some degree of, of closure or resolution on the whole thing. And I truly believe it, Chris. I'm not just saying it to say I wanted a happy ending. Um, I never had joy in my life until seven years ago, and now I see everything as an opportunity. And um, yes, I think you have to face your trauma and you have to get it unstuck out of your body. But at the same time, I look at things as more of an opportunity instead of. Oh, no, not just another thing I have to deal with, you know, that attitude. So it's been very helpful to me. I wrote it to heal. Right. I'm familiar with that process. (laughs) How, what sort of feedback have you gotten? Has anything surprised you in terms of uh, people reaching out to you after reading it and relating that to their own experiences? Yes, a lot of what you just said. I've had zero pushback. I've had no one say, how could you? And I've recently come out and told people my real name is Linda Campbell-Pivak. And I'm not even afraid if other people in my life, if they want to give me some pushback about how could you say things like that, I'll be ready to stand firm, use my voice, and know my truth. Awesome. So it's been very, and I've heard from other people um, where they want to share with me, they've written a letter to their infant self, like I do in the book, and they want to share that. And so it is pretty neat to, even though a lot of people aren't adoptees, but they still write me and say, everything tracked with me from what you said, and I could put my own circumstances in it. So, you know, as a writer, that is just music to my ears. Oh yeah, absolutely. And and again, I, I can relate. What is your, are your adoptive parents still around? Well, that's one of the reasons why I'm reconciling my names right now is that both my parents have recently passed. Okay. They were the ones I was really trying to protect because there was no time left for repairing the situation and their emotional maturity would never have allowed them to, you know, accept what I had to say. So I wanted to use my voice and using a pseudonym was my way of going ahead and speaking and not waiting until they passed. But now they've passed and now I don't have to keep any secrets anymore. I am breathing fresh air. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm really glad that you found that path and that you Thank found you. some, yeah, it's found some catharsis there with that. Um so unfortunately, <laughs> that's that's not really the all there is to your story. Though you had this, you had this path, you had this recovery, but then uh, 
some other things kind of entered into the road. And and there are lessons here, which is one of the reasons when you contacted me, I thought, oh, yeah, this is something I definitely wanted to feature on my show. Because it's, it's you know, we lead lots of lives in our lives. You know, we don't, we, it's not just a one thing. I've been many things. You've been different things. And, um, and it's, it's interesting. Please describe what happened with your husband and then therapist. Okay. So this is, uh, talked about just briefly in the first book, but it's the whole topic of the second book. A fire is coming. Mm -hmm. And literally, it starts off with a Laguna Beach fire of 1993. And we are running from the flames because the whole town was ablaze. And so the whole book is weaved around, woven around um, fire, a real fire. And then it became a um, unethical, exploitative therapist became the fire. And she was trying to consume me. So that was jumping ahead a little bit, but um, I was telling you before we started how I was primed for this kind of exploitation mm -hmm. because I grew up in a um, exploitative household with my parents and then went and married someone that was on the spectrum of being a narcissist. And then my next door neighbor was a psychologist. We met at the mailbox one day and I found out she was a psychologist and I said, I've been looking for one. And so she handed me her card and I literally was in her office the next week. I had no idea that it's unethical to accept your next door neighbor as a client. That is okay. Red flag number one. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It gets worse. Uh, yes, and it does. It does. If we, if we might step back for a second, I'd like to, um, I'd like to ask you a little bit about your uh, husband and that situation, and then, and then roll into this one, only to connect the between the two things, I suppose. Mm -hmm. You mentioned being primed for this, and and I'm just curious, in what way do you see that, and how did that, how did you connect with your husband, and when did it become apparent or the, the the red flags start appearing in your mind in terms of, oh, something's not quite right here with this. It was due to my conditioning of mm -hmm. when I was growing up with um, certain personalities, big personalities that left no room for anyone else in the room. And when I met my future husband, he was the creative director of the advertising agency where I also worked. And we were together almost on day one. And he had that kind of big personality of, and he was also 20 years my senior. Um, so it didn't take much for me to be looking maybe for a parent. I had moved to California from my home in Oklahoma. So I was really a fish out of water. I see. And when I got this job in California, which I had gone to college for, um, I was ecstatic. And I thought, everything's falling into place. I'm in California and now I've met this boyfriend and um, we were together, like I said, virtually day one. And he had a very charismatic personality. And that's a theme in my life of these people with big personalities that I only later find out had an agenda the whole time. Mm. So, like if something looks too good to be true, it probably is. But I didn't know that at the time. Sure. I was just thinking, 
this is great. So we eventually marry. It, cool. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm going to ask you some questions because I'm curious about yeah, a few things. And we raised in Oklahoma by adoptive parents. Were they religious? No, they weren't. Interesting for Oklahoma. They had their own religion. Did they? It was they were their gods and they were my gods. So that's what made them cultic because ah. it was really a, you know, information like the bite model of they monitor my information, my behavior, my exposure. And it was only you're going to think this. You have no boundaries. And so I was just the conformist to a T. Interesting. How were they imposing this? Um, often, I, I brought up religion only because often it is utilized as a framework of I, control in I families, know. right? Um, also moral foundations, etc. How did, if it wasn't through religion, how were your parents imposing um, this control on you? They were both only children, and I think that had a lot to do with it. Mm -hmm. And they were both on the spectrum of being narcissists. And they purchased my brother and I, and I use that term intentionally mm -hmm. because we were a commodity of you. We were purchased to play the daughter and the son, and we were to not go outside of that role. And if we did, you know, they were our gods. They could take food away. They could take clothing away. They could take anything away. And that was always really clear that we had to stay on the straight and narrow so it does a lot of conditioning to your brain. And it's no wonder to me that I went out to, into the world after college and looked for the same situation because that's what I was comfortable with. Right. Tell me what to do. Tell me who to be. And that's another adoptee thing of being a chameleon because we tend to have abandonment issues and we want to just find out what will make you comfortable we never ask ourselves. It's always, how can I conform to stay in the room? Right. And that's certainly a theme that runs true through cultic activities as well. Was there physical abuse? Yes, there was quite a bit. Okay. Yeah, and, quite a bit. Okay. And then you also mentioned um, uh, food or sleep deprivation. Was that a, was that a purposeful campaign? Yes. Um, I don't know if it was a conscious thing in them, but they just, uh, hmm. I think probably the physical abuse and the mental abuse of the verbal and the mental and then followed up with physical, it, it just all was very heavy and it was consistent. That was the deal too. Mm. A very everyday kind of thing. And then you pour alcohol on it and it became explosive. So oh, then my brother and I are walking around in fear all the time of who are they going to be now? Who do I need to be now? Do I need to duck and roll and pivot? So we became very good at, or at least I, I think I was a little better than my brother. And I don't know why, but he seemed to get caught at everything. Interesting. Okay, I get that. Uh, by alcohol, do you mean your parents, were they both alcoholics? They drank alcoholically. I don't know that they were, you know, true blue, but it doesn't matter at the end of the day. If you drink alcoholically and your behavior is affected day in and day out, you might as well be because there's no difference. Well, yeah. I mean, for all practical purposes, then, yeah, you're an alcoholic. I, yeah. I, I grew up in an interesting situation where um, 
I, where my father was an alcoholic, but it was only on weekends. It was functional. Uh, I guess is the term for it, a functional alcoholic. Uh, he's no longer now. I mean, he, he's gotten well past that at this point. But, um, but growing up, it was difficult because the weekends were a wild time. Uh, but he would keep it under control during the week. Was it just 24-7 for you guys? I would say yes. It was a daily, uh, daily event. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that that happened. To and you. then my brother became an alcoholic, and so did I. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> well, that's that tends to be how it goes. I know a learned yeah. behavior. Right. Okay. Got it. So, okay. So these are the things you're referring to. Were there was there any other? I just wanted to kind of get the get the background on you know where this goes. Yeah. And, and so with your family situation, were there any other points or details that you feel are important to what occurred later in terms of priming or prepping or conditioning you for, you know, your later life uh, happenstances? The gaslighting. I, I can't leave that out because it was a slowly a chipping away at someone's uh, feeling of value and questioning their abilities. And when you have someone that is especially my mother didn't want anything to happen that didn't glorify her. Oh. So there was just a lot of gaslighting and uh, my responsibility as the dutiful daughter was to prop her up and take care of her emotionally. Okay. Okay. And, and I didn't do a good job of that. So that's why she was very unhappy a lot of the time. But honestly, Chris, I don't know if she'd ever have been happy, even if, I did become a mini her and did everything she said. I don't know someone that's that unhappy. They're unhappy with themselves. And I don't know that there was anything at all I could have done about that, but I sure I kept trying. Right. Right. Um, yeah, I get that. Uh, how did the, I, I just get, again, just cause I'm kind of curious about your situation. How did the gaslighting manifest over, over time? How did you, what, what happened? What did she do? Well, it got worse and worse the older my brother and I became. Mm -hmm. And I think she got more, um, well, addicted in her frame of mind, addicted to her own way of thinking. And then I can't leave my dad out because they were a partnership and he didn't protect us. He saw, I don't know if he knew everything that was happening, but I fault him because he was probably a little less of a narcissist, but he did not protect us. He was only there to glorify my mom. And when I became 11, 12, I became the other woman in the house. And that's a pretty awful feeling for a young girl that should be being helped with changing from a child into, you know, a preteen. There was no help. It was just only ridicule and embarrassment and anything to rip the rug right under my feet. Hmm. That's awful. Okay. It was, it was pretty bad. And when I was 17, took me that long. I look, she hit me for the last time and I looked her in the eye and I raised my own arm up and I said, don't you ever hit me again? And she never did, okay. but she was also very good at the mental abuse too, of any kind of, you know, let me challenge your thinking and let me undermine you uh, up until she passed a year ago. She was telling me, how could you have gone out and looked the way you did in that picture that you showed on Facebook? 
And I thought it was a pretty good picture. <laughs> but she was leading to me to believe that she got oh, I can't believe you went out looking like that. Okay. So it was pretty blatant control of your appearance and your behavior. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, I get it. And so you jump from that to this this man who's 20 years your senior, who you fall immediately into a relationship with, and that ends up not being so wonderful either. Yeah, I figured out it was smoke and mirrors, but that wasn't until after we were married, and I started to see that I, again, had grasped at a fantasy because he looked all shiny and good-looking, and he's the creative director, but had no substance whatsoever. Mm. And what? that's a pattern in my life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I get that. What were they, I mean, looking back on it now from their perspective you have now, how long was the courtship? Four years we lived together. Yeah, it okay. was a while. Yeah. Um, and what sort of, what, so in looking back on it, what sort of red flags were popping up that you would say now were things you should have been paying more attention to? He was in trouble with the IRS. They were garnishing his paycheck for back child support. And mm. he led me to believe it was all his ex-wife's fault. And I believed him. Um, and so that became a theme throughout our marriage also that he had continuous tax troubles with the IRS and would lie to them. And that really kind of was the ultimate thing that broke us apart when I finally said, I have to go. Mm. Because it was just the deceit. And it was just a uh, one sign of a much larger picture of that's who he was as a person. Could not take accountability uh, felt like everyone else should give to him. He was very jealous. I, you know, if you're rich, you should give me your money because I deserve it and you don't. <laughs> that kind of thinking. It was very entitled. Interesting. Interesting. And lying to the IRS, not just ducking out yeah, on taxes, lied. but actually fibbing. Yeah, he lied. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> he wow. All right. I get it on that. Were there uh, other aspects to uh, the relationship in terms of uh, other uh, vectors of, of control or was he, was he physically abusive or were there other things going on? No, he was absolutely not physically abusive. Good. But he was on the debate team in high school and um, he was very good verbally because he was a writer and me coming from a home where I couldn't speak, I could have no boundaries. Um, he could just box me into a corner with his words. Got and it. I felt defeated often. And plus, you know, someone being 20 years your senior, they already have that power differential. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Get it. Okay, got it on that. So, um, so not a great situation there. How long were you married, by the way, How, in, in total? Uh, longer, I kept on because I felt like, um, my children, we had children together mm -hmm. and love my kids, like, you know, just beyond anything. And I wanted to keep the marriage together, feeling it was the best thing I could do for them. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think we were married for 12 years until my kids were maybe 10 and eight. And that's when I finally made my decision 
to separate and divorce. Okay. Okay. Got it. And, and then of course, prior to that, there was this therapist that entered your life. Right. Yes. Okay. So let's go ahead and get into that. When, um, how long into your marriage did that happen? It was very early. Um, it was probably in year two, the very beginning of year two. So we were very fresh, but we were already having marital difficulties, which led me to wanting to seek counseling, not only for that, but adoption angst that I felt that I still had. And also we were having trouble getting pregnant. Oh, okay. Okay. Got it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Up until that point, had you had any other therapy or seen a counselor? Very briefly, it was in college for a few sessions. I had no idea of what good therapy looked like or boundaries or, you know, um, what is part of the therapeutic boundaries. I had no idea. Right, right. We would not call you an educated patient <laughs> or counselee. Yeah. Right. And that's, uh, that's a thing, by the way. I mean, I'm just to throw this out there for people, because I've done a lot of talking on this channel about going about getting therapy. And actually, even uh, I did a podcast with Rachel Bernstein, a licensed therapist, about yeah. how to find the right therapist for you, because it is a little bit of a, or it can be a little bit of a shopping experience for some people, right? Trying to find the right fit, trying to find the person you can kind of connect with, but at the same time, not in a not in any kind of weird, inappropriate way, in a professional yeah. way, right? In a way that you can trust this person and they can help you. And that's not everybody that, you know, it's not a one size fits all thing. So, um, so not knowing any of that, not knowing how this stuff works, people can make mistakes and then come to the conclusion that it's all just bunkum and none of it works and therapy is useless, which would be an incorrect conclusion to make based on one or two bad experiences. But it's totally understandable how that yeah. could happen. So it's something that I, you know, that I, I try to try to help people with. And your cases would be a cautionary tale in that exact direction. So. So yeah. having said all that or introed it that way, how did you, you said that the, you met her at the mailbox of, of all places. What, what happened exactly that she uh, wrangled you in? It was just all very unexpected, literally opening my mailbox. And in California, the houses are, you know, very close together and the driveways are very short. And so we were just literally just standing face to face and it just rolled out of, she said she was a psychologist. And I said, I've been looking for one. And then she said, here's my card, call me. And I immediately did. And then I was in her office the next week. Right, right. So it, Yeah, I odds have, are if yeah. you know where your therapist lives, something's wrong. <laughs> yeah. just, just as a general rule, right? It, it is, there are ethical codes for therapists. There are like, there, there, you know, licensed therapy operates on rules and they are expected to follow certain ethical guidelines that are, that are laid down for their profession and personal contact outside of therapeutic situations, being friends, establishing personal relationships is not good. It's not okay. It's not something that is considered ethical behavior on the part of therapists. It's a very professional relationship and it needs to stay that way. So that being just one guideline we could cite, what happened with her and you as you proceeded to connect up with her as a therapist? 
Well, I told her all of my presenting symptoms of why I wanted to see her. And um, it was interesting that we never worked on any of those issues of being adopted or um, the you know having trouble conceiving. And as far as the marriage, from day one, she started chipping away, just like dear old mom of my mom, chipping away at my resolve about my marriage of, you know, oh, he's 20 years, your senior. Doesn't that give you pause? And yes, it should. But you'll see that it just got compounded like a sociopath does of it wasn't just that. It was an insidious way of, you know, I, I don't think he treats you well. Um, look how he does this. Let's get him in for counseling. So we did marital counseling together. And then she would just... Uh, talk poorly about him in the next session to me saying, giving me her advice that I should leave him. Wow. Okay. Okay. Definitely, uh, again, not cool <laughs> for what should be fairly obvious reasons. What were your thoughts at that time about this behavior? How were you reacting to it in the moment? Okay, well, I think I have to loop in my mm -hmm. adoptedness at this point because mm -hmm. of my relinquishment of being severed from my birth mother and not having that uh, relationship in my life, then I did not get it with my adoptive mother either. Mm -hmm. And so this therapist from the get-go had told me and made a promise that I'm going to be the mother you never had. And so that was her offering my heart's desire on a silver platter. And so I believe it helped me disconnect all of my intuition of when I, a red flag, flag would occur, I would go whoosh it away, you know, because the, the ultimate thing is I need a mom that I've never had. And she would speak to me in those terms. She would hug me like a mother. She would, um, it was just insidious the way it slowly oh, built. Oh my God. Yeah. Until then, she was hugging me in the beginning of the session and then at the end of the session. Wow. Wow. Yeah. When you say boundary violations, you aren't kidding. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is this, this is pretty bad. Um, yeah. Physical contact, telling you, you know, connecting analogies with familial relationships, which is absolutely something that cult leaders do. Um, yeah. you know, this is why they're called father and mother <laughs> often. I, I mean, you know, it's, it's not subtle. Um, wow. Okay. So how, what was the, just as a general, what was her, what, how, what was her physicality? How old, how much older than you was she? What was, how did she come across to you? Well, she was 10 years older mm -hmm. and that was, I'm glad you brought that up because I've already told you I was a person in my past that liked shiny things, things that glowed, things that were too good to be true. Mm -hmm. And she dressed to the hilt of polish, you know, mm -hmm. had the doctor's glasses that she would lower and look at me and have a penetrating stare. And it would be the business suit that was feminine, but yet masculine. And it would be the um, perfect shoes, the perfect jewelry. Um, she'd have wear this perfume, which I kind of believe therapists shouldn't wear cologne because our senses um, are one of our biggest things to get entice us. And she's wearing this perfume that is really heavy. 
And it was just another way to trip me up uh, to think of her as being something that I should um, have more of a relationship with than not. Then it became, call me anytime, come over to my house, you're next door, I'm right here, you're not bothering me, come on over. And so that began of where there was therapy, not only in her office, but she would claim it was therapy in her home. Mm. Oh, yeah. And she said, mm. bring your husband, mm. bring him too. So he came over, but he would talk to the psychologist's partner, mate of that lived in the house. And my psychologist would take me downstairs into her private office. And so things got really heated and... For me, my uh, sense of agency and balance of stability really went on tilt because I didn't know what the freak was happening. All I knew is that I got to the point where she had told me I have to be vulnerable. I can't do, she couldn't do her job with me unless I laid down all my defenses. And she would chip away at that until finally over months, I was like, okay, fine, fine. I'm going to give it all to you. I'm just going to you know, relinquish all control to you. And so then I was just in the palm of her hand. Well, there you go. And that's then that's exactly the uh, opposite direction from where ethical counseling goes, because it's about self empowerment, not giving over your power to other to an authority figure. That's the whole that's the whole point. You know, how interesting. So she did you was she truly indeed a licensed therapist? Yes. She still practices at the tune of $400 a session. Oh, my goodness. Yes. So I'm assuming, or maybe I shouldn't, so let me ask you, um, well, let's actually just go ahead and go through the whole story because then we can see where this goes. So so she's clearly violating boundaries uh, between the client-patient, you know, uh, therapy-therapist relationship um, in, in... bringing in her personal life and bringing in your husband and, and talking derogatorily to you about your husband, who she yeah. ostensibly gave therapy to as well, uh, which, yeah. which compounds the problem. And, yeah. um, and this seems to have been agenda-driven based on where this kind of went, which was, where did this go? <laughs> well, at some point during the therapy, she confided in me her sexual preference. Mm-hmm. And she's a lesbian. And um, at like that at that time, she had a mate in her house. I never knew that that person was actually a patient of hers also. Um, I came to find that out much later. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, I feel that from the time that she saw me at the mailbox, she knew that she was going to have me for her own. I think that was her agenda the whole time. Mm-hmm. And she would get me to believe just like is so common in this circumstance of uh, therapists who, who abuse is they let you know, if you ever say anything, it's all your fault. You instigated this relationship. And if you do, you're, you're not believing how special this relationship is. And I know that I wouldn't do that with anyone else, but the, our love we have is special. Right. And that's the classic. I didn't know that at the time, but now I know that's just the classic thing that happens all the time. And they're trying to gaslight you. So you won't ever speak out and say, you know, what you did was wrong. I'm taking you to court or I'm trying to, I'm going to the board of ethics and reporting you. Right. 
Exactly. Exactly right. In looking at this through a lens of thought reform or coercive control and looking at, you know, the various things that she was doing, you've highlighted a couple things. Um, I'm curious, what did she attempt? Okay, well, first off, how long did this relationship go on for? Well, luckily, it did not last as long as what I hear a lot of people going through. Mm. Uh, if you watch The Shrink Next Door, mm-hmm. uh, Will Ferrell, right? Mm-hmm. And Paul Rudd, yeah. I think it Brilliant lasted 20 show. Years. Yeah, that went 20 years. That's right. And anyone that thinks that this couldn't ever happen to them, watch that show because it's a slow chipping away at your resolve. That's right. <laughs> Until finally that guy owns his business, lives in his house, and all of that. That's right. So, but I was fortunate um, when I was doing therapy with her, it was about um, three or four months. And then she moved me into her home without my knowledge. She had a key to my house next door. And my husband and I were about to physically move to a different home. She still had a key. And one day while I was at work, she went into my home and got all my clothes, my personal items, and moved them to her house next door, called me on the phone at work and said, I did what you I know are not strong enough to do. I've moved you in to my home and it's just the two of us now. And and this was how long after you guys had? About four months. Four months, my goodness. So this went very, very quickly. It did. There was a fire that w- was that I opened this up with. There was an actual fire in Laguna Beach. Mm-hmm. And that kind of really progressed things to a faster pace. Um, but I lived with her probably two more months. So I'd say start to finish maybe six months of actually being involved with her. Yeah, about six months. Okay, got it. Before you got out of that situation. Before I got out. But my mind was still wrapped around for a long, many oh, years sure. later. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, no. This is this was quite interesting. Um, how, okay, so you and your husband are going to move, and then suddenly you've moved out. What would, I mean, did, and this was early on in your marriage. This was in the first few years. So what yeah. was, what were his thoughts about and reactions to this? Well, by then, it was already apparent that when we go over uh, to her home, and then she would take me downstairs for therapy and he would be left upstairs. He kept asking me what the hell's going on. Mm-hmm. So when um, I believe I did call him to say, I'm out of the house for a little while. I'm not going to be coming back. I'm not moving with you. And I didn't really leave him room to try to talk to me. And I know that I was I was off balance and I didn't want to hear what he had to say. Mm-hmm. Because at that point, she had convinced me he was the enemy, mm-hmm. and that he was trying to take me down. And so she became my salvation. Wow. In what ways, um, beyond what you've described so far in terms of this chipping away process, this very quickly that this happened. And so I'm, I'm very curious about the details of this, if you, if you don't mind. Yeah. How exactly did she make such an impact so quickly? Because I think a lot of people would hear this and go, my God, what? Yeah. And I, I, I have no problem believing this. I know how fast this can happen. <laughs> so yeah. so you're not hearing doubt in my mind. I just would like to develop the details of, of how did this play out so quickly for you? Troubled marriage to 
moving yeah. in with your counselor next door within that period of time is is really quite surprising. So what? how did this happen? It does sound crazy, um, but I would bring my adoptedness into it again. There's a hormone called oxytocin, mm-hmm. and it's really a a very needed substance that happens to bond the baby and the mother together. Mm-hmm. And it promotes better development and just, uh, you know, the relationship of, um, of them bonding together and thriving the baby to thrive. So then fast forward to, this is what this woman has been saying. She's going to give me be the mother I never had. She used oxytocin by anytime we hug someone, any t- it's the cuddle hormone is what it's called. Mm. And it had an effect on me to where she was embracing me and it became more and more of an embrace and less of, you know, just a little pat pat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and at, I remark in my book of where I, at one point I'm thinking, you know, that awkward point in a hug where you wonder when are they going to let go? Should I let go? Um, anyway, I let my arms fall to the, to my sides and she kept hugging me. And I think that was a really huge, big flag to me thinking, this is, this is a sexual hug. Mm. (laughs) And so it became more and more of a peck on the cheek. And then it was, I'm going to hold your hands. And then it was, I'm going to pull my chair right beside you and our knees are going to touch. Then it's my hands are going to be on your knees. And then I'm leaning in and she's kissing me during our session. Wow. Okay. And there is zero question <laughs> that that is inappropriate behavior for a yeah. therapist and a client, right? Or a, a therapist and their and their patient. Uh, yeah. I mean, there is no, there's never, ever, ever an excuse for that. Just to be crystal clear, right? People Even might. Even if I was stark naked. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people might might get into. Oh well, you know, maybe coincidentally you live across the street from each other. Oh, maybe socially, you know, it wouldn't be so horrible every now and again to to run into each other at the grocery store or something. Yeah, okay, fine. Sexual contact, forget it. That is, there is no question that that is a clear-cut ethical violation yeah. uh, of their ethics because there's never any positivity that's going to result in the in the the patient therapy you know relationship with that with sex yes right it, right like period all it does is make things more complicated and worse every time you know uh, no matter what the context is yeah um there are very few <laughs> totalist rules you know what i mean absolute rules when it comes to therapy but that would be one of them and that's exactly what they're taught day one when they enter yes. their program so it's not that they've never heard this before but unfortunately it seems like a lot of them think it doesn't apply to them this is different this is true love and so they get caught up in their own stuff that they haven't solved. Exactly. And people are people, you know, but uh, that would be one of those things that if we fast forward into how to choose a therapist, <laughs> that you may want to think of some of these things to ask and find out about. Absolutely. Um, now, in that time, there's, there's the physic, there's the physical 
boundary violations slowly, slowly, you know, sort of uh, frog in the boiling water effect, right? Creeping up on you. Yeah. Were there other subtle uh, or what you know ended up being not so subtle uh, efforts or, or advances uh, on you beyond that? There was something that she used that was, I call it the reward and punishment of where she would applaud me. You know, I was the best ever. I looked just like Jennifer Aniston. I walked on water, whatever. And then it would be followed by punishment. And hmm. so there was that, you know, applause. And then there was the hook. And that was very familiar to me also from childhood. But Oh, um, did you grow up with that as well? Oh, just the gaslighting. Yeah. Again, it was hmm. very, you know, if I was doing something that glorified my parents, uh, I was golden. But then if they wanted to, if I started developing or showing a tendency to like something they didn't understand, then it would be, we're going to slash you down to size and to where, you know, you can't make, you won't even feel like waking up the next day. Wow. It was pretty bad. It was wow. pretty bad. Okay. Yeah. And okay. she knew that technique also of to keep me off balance and not have agency over my life. Right. It sounds like she was um, engaging in a form of uh, what we would refer to as trauma bonding. Oh, definitely. Right. Where you have this alternation of reward and penalty with what tends to happen is, is it will start with what we might call manipulative kindness. I love that yeah, term, uh, right? Love bombing. Oh, yes. Right. This mm -hmm. idea of like, you know, overly complimentary, overly complimentary, um, you know, you're the, as you just mentioned, you're the bomb, you were Jennifer Aniston, you look amazing, you're, you're so smart, you're so intelligent, you're so clever, um, but then mixed in with these subtle punishments, and then gradually over time, the punishments increase and the rewards decrease. <laughs> yes, right? exactly. And how, and how, and, and in seeing that or in discussing that, like, how did that, how did that play out for you with her? I would say the biggest punishment she gave me, and this was right before she moved me into her home, mm. uh, but she dropped a bomb on me when I didn't come to dinner one night when she wanted me to. And she told me that I was either bipolar or that I had, um, what was the other personality disorder, bipolar, or I can't think of it right offhand, mm. but diagnosing me with a mental disorder, um, and you have to scroll it back and remember, I knew nothing about psychology. I knew nothing. All I knew is that she had credentials and I didn't. Mm -hmm. And she, a doctor, was telling me I had this. And so that severely hobbled me to thinking that, well, doctor, please, you know, help me. <laughs> if I am that bad off, please help me. Right. Well, that's exactly the whole point is, you know, I'm in the position of power and I'm the only one who can help you. Yeah. Did um did that language start appearing, by the way, this business of I'm the only one who can help you? Oh, definitely. Mm. And that's where she was able to exclude my husband. He's so bad for you, but how I would take care of you is so much better. And I'd be telling her, I'm not a lesbian. And <laughs> and she just glossed right over that. That doesn't matter. <laughs> right. You'll get used to it. Or I don't know. It, it was really a question in my mind because I would, 
it was uh, incongruent with who I am because I'm not a lesbian, but yet I was attracted to her. Mm. But it was more from my little baby self that just wanted to hug her and wanted that mother love. Mm-hmm. And it all mixed up with sexual feelings. And there's actually a term for that that's called genetic sexual attraction. And it happens for adoptees that sometimes in reunion, when you've met a family member that you haven't known your entire life, but you meet them, and there's some immediate attraction that, as we're adults, sex is involved, meaning that it can get confused of mm-hmm. where I just wanted to hug her, but then it became sex. Right. And it, it was like, how does this happen? But it's actually a very documented thing. It, no, understood. Understood. Uh, yeah. The biological components there. Yeah, it's... Um... It, it, this, again, and that's exactly the reason why, one of the many laundry list of reasons why, uh, you, you just can't enter that into a therapeutic relationship, period. There's just never any excuse for it Yeah, uh, because it makes things so confusing because it brings in chemical reactions. You talked about oxytocin earlier. There's yeah. all kinds of you know brain activity going on. And this is bonding activity. This is not. Um, this is not just about physical pleasure. This is about emotional commitment. Uh, these, these things are what and are how we think about what feels good and what feels bad, and, and what drives our emotional needs. Is these is you know is a lot of these chemical processes. So, so confusing these things. And love is is already confusing enough between families. <laughs> And adoptees and and sexual partners. There's already enough mess up in there, and then you're going to have the therapist bring this in. I, I I'm really aghast at that whole at that whole scenario. It's really quite awful. Um, and again, appeared to be agenda driven from from the, from the very beginning. She she targeted yeah, so. you. It, it appears. I really think so. She was grooming me the whole time. Yeah. And that, and that's where, you know, that's a very correct use of that word. Uh, we find right now a lot of incorrect use of that word grooming uh, being done right now for ideological agenda driven propaganda purposes. And that kind of drives me a little crazy because it, because then it tends to water down situations like this. Yeah. Where you become a target of somebody who is in a power position and they start working you over and that repetitive process of working you over and wearing down your defenses and changing your value set is what they're trying to do. Yeah. That's grooming. And that's a real psychop. You know, it's yeah. it's a it really messes with you, and it has long term consequences if you, you know, until you kind of figure out and learn how this stuff works, and can kind of take it apart. I'm curious in the process of her doing that of of that grooming process, was uh, was was confession ever part of the confession of the of the therapy process or or the relationship? It doesn't have to have been. I'm just curious if it was. Yeah. I mean, confession that she had, she would start to tell me all the people that she had had inappropriate relationships with. Oh, my goodness. Well, I, I was sort of thinking of her asking you to confess things to her, but that's interesting that she did that that way. Well, and I did let her know that I had written a journal ever since I started therapy with her because I was trying to make sense of my emotions 
and I'm a journaler, I'm a writer, right? Um, and she said, oh, I'm going to need to read those. Uh-huh. <laughs> so she immediately, her hair was standing up and she was, I could tell the insistence of, she was very panicked and I did let her read them. Mm. And, um, I don't want to fast forward too much, but those would come up again in the story mm-hmm. at a later point. But as far as her confessions to me, I started to realize she was using her client pool as, you know, her her victims of her car dealership guy, of the person that did her yard work, of her all of the mates that she's had. She's been their therapist. So she was using her pool, you know, to fortify her life. Wow. Because, yeah, the, while she's doing all of this, she's charging you for it. Yes. Yes. Right. <laughs> Jesus, man. What a gig. Um, okay. How interesting. So how did this proceed then? I mean, you, this, this seems to have happened very quickly, overwhelmed your life. Were you, were, you were still working during this time as well? I was trying my hardest, but my head was not even attached to my body because I was so off balance and advertising is a very fast paced business. And I was late. I wouldn't show up places. I was, I'm not sure how I didn't get fired to tell you the truth. Uh, but yes, I was still kind of working and, um, but it became clear to me that she started to want me to just take care of her household. Once she moved me in with her, she started saying, why don't you quit your job? You know, I've got a, this nice beachfront house over overlooking the Pacific ocean and you don't need to work. But what I'd like you to do is take care of my house, my dogs, my cleaning, my, uh, you could get dinner ready. You could, and that's when a lot of stuff started going, ah, a little clarity started seeping through of like, what is this? What What's this all about? Because she liked to say how much more important she was than me. And by that time, I'd virtually lost my job. And it almost became where I was just her servant in her house doing her things. Right. That's, that sounds exactly like the direction she wanted to go in is just make you into her housewife. She said to you that she was more important than you were? Oh, yeah, definitely. Mm. You know, I have this early morning meeting with my client, and you're making me late for it, and you're interfering with that. And if you had gotten dinner ready on time, then I wouldn't have had to cancel this and blah, blah, blah. So like you said earlier, the punishment really started showing up. Mm -hmm. And what the other interesting thing which helped me escape is that her mask started falling. She couldn't maintain this persona of perfection and angel. She couldn't do that forever. And it started slipping and her uh, behavior became erratic. She'd start yelling. She'd start slamming me against walls. And I became quite afraid of her. And again, she reminded me of my adoptive mom. Right, right. And once I got enough taste of that and enough energy, one and this was what I highlight in the book is my escape of it gave me the adrenaline and fuel to grab all my stuff while she was at work one day and I left and I never came back. Excellent. 
Excellent. So good. If we're getting out of that situation, obviously. Um, I couldn't help but think of the 90 day rule. Somebody told me this one time and I'll just share it just because it's, it's, it's maybe helpful. Um, the 90 day relationship rule is uh, you never, ever, 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 ever <laughs> make any important decision in a relationship until 90 days have passed because nobody can keep a mask on for 90 days. <laughs> you know, eventually it starts slipping, right? Yeah. Uh, because there's often people will dive right in. I mean, you see people get married in a week or two or three or whatever, or move in or, you know, time to meet the parents or trying to make, trying to, you know, let's do something big, moving this thing forward. Give it 90 days. See who the person really right. is, you know, uh, pretty common sense, really. So, what happened after you left? Did she come after you? Did she pursue you? What? What? what, what where, how, where was your husband in 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 this now? He had moved to a, a home that was real close in the neighborhood, and he had during this whole time I was with her, because we worked at the same agency, and he was feeding me a little information at a time, and I started to chew on it and consider it to think if. Uh, I was being taken advantage of mm. because I was still thinking, is he the enemy or is she my savior? And it, it, the the scale started to tip. Her mask came off. I started listening. And when I had that adrenaline to leave her, I didn't have any other option, I thought, at that time, other than to go back to my husband. Okay. And, so, and then we stayed together for about you know, 10 years after that. And we did have two children and, um, this all happened 29 years ago, by the way. Wow. So, yeah. 29 years ago. Wow. Uh, it took me that long to get it out of me and onto paper. Got I it. wrote my first book and then I thought, wait a minute, I'm not done. I've got to write about this horrific experience, not only to heal for myself, but to have other people look at that and say, oh my gosh, I thought something was wrong in my relationship with my therapist, but I didn't know. And so if I could create any awareness, which is why um, I had Yanya Lalich, I was honored by her um, endorsing my book. Mm -hmm. And then of course I read Take Back Your Life. And so I've really educated myself on how it happened, what happened, how to not ever let anything like that happen again. Because there are cultic situations every, everywhere, as you know. Yeah, yeah, very, very much so, including in these one-on-one -on -one relationships. Yeah, um, yeah, we call them pseudo-therapeutic cults when they involve a, a therapist or a, or a counselor, uh, because it is not therapy; it is pseudo-therapy, right? It's fake therapy, really, um, because yeah. the person's only running a pretense of being an ethical counselor or therapist. Or psychiatrist, even, and 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 we've seen groups that have gone off the rails with this. Uh, Primal Scream was a wonderful example. In fact, one of the biggest examples because the the psychiatrists and therapists involved ended up losing their licenses and being sued to the tune of you know more than any other single suit, I believe, something like that. Um, that was really popular in the 60s and 70s. That's kind of ancient history, but 
it happens all over the place. And it's something I try to stress with people is acting classes can turn into little cults and, and martial arts dojos can turn into little cults. All it takes is somebody who is willing to abuse their authority and lord it over other people in order to create that that situation. And therapists are human beings too. And predators can enter that profession just like they can any other. Right. Um, were there any further consequences or or efforts to pursue her in terms of uh, you know reporting her licensing board anything like that or did you just move on no i couldn't move on i needed to report her to the board of ethics huh? she was a psychologist also a social worker so i reported her to both boards that took a long time i also got an attorney and there was a civil lawsuit against her it's public um it's in the public uh what do you call it domain <laughs> public, yeah, the public domain yes it, it's been documented okay yes and so we ended up settling out of court because it was a sizable amount and by that time you know i was only influenced by her for six months remember that whole uh actually being abused by her uh but the court proceeding lasted until almost 97 which wow. was you know 93 to 1997 and i was ready to be done with it i couldn't move on until i did what i needed to do to protect others but at the same time i couldn't fully let it go until i didn't have to do uh you know court proceedings and documents and show up to court and and remember things, have to tell people what happened. So I was ready for it to be done by that time. Sure. That makes complete sense. And it's an, an all too common, uh, you know, end result of civil suits as they drag on and on and on. We've seen this yeah. in Scientology uh, with Scientology lawsuits over and over again. They just go on for years and years and years. Yeah. And they whittle it, your resolve down yeah. because... They, and they want it that way, so you will give up and walk away. Yeah, exactly. Because, uh, yeah, systematically it might not be justice, but it is uh, a one way to deal with the volume of of cases is just make it take forever. Um, so what were the end results of that? You said you got a sizable um, uh, settlement from that. Is she still practicing? Did the licensing boards take any action against her? The um, Board of Psychology gave her minimal restriction, and she was able to reinstate after a couple of things were required. So it didn't um, actually, I'm sorry, I'm, let's reverse that. Mm -hmm. It was uh, the Board of Social Workers that let her reinstate. That's what she's practicing under now. Okay. The Board of Psychology revoked her license, and she's never tried to get it back. But she didn't really need it because she's under social worker and she's able to get $400 a session current present day. Wow. Okay. I mean, I am very happy to hear that at least the APA pulled her therapist license um, yes. because her behavior was unquestionably, I mean, if what you said is true, it's unquestionably unethical and it crossed yes. lines that are not, you know, you just don't get a second chance when you are so blatantly uh, disregard, you know, the the, the rules yeah. of your profession. But that is disappointing about her social work. Yes, I know. I agree. And we were unable to get the other people that had been abused by her. Um, unfortunately, they had been so psychologically damaged 
that they were not up to doing um, a, an appearance in court or even filling out a document. Mm. So it would have made it a lot stronger, but it really shouldn't have, you know, if you, if I've found all of those things were documented, one person should have been enough to say, we're going to revoke your license. You don't need to be practicing and hurting other people like this. Exactly. Yeah, that's so awful. And and of course, in what you've described here, if you've all been um, paying attention out there, you see, uh, you know, so many of the various components of, of thought reform and, and control that we talk about on this channel, right? Between, um, well, you know, the, the sort of if you lay down Lifton's points, right? I mean, you got... You know the 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 whole dispensing of existence and the milieu control and the you know sort of just authoritarianly taking over somebody's life. In other words, uh, it's all there. You know these are the components of of controlling people. And looking back on it now, beyond the things we've talked about, it, it, were there any other red flags or other things, the warning signs that you now would be looking for or would warn people to watch for uh, in similar circumstances? Uh, well, I would say you're not, um, don't believe that you're special because they give you their personal phone number and don't let them say you can come over to their home anytime. Um, if they, if your session is 50 minutes to an hour and it becomes two hours, that's a red flag. If they excessively touch you, that's not okay. You know, just... Maybe not even touch you at all, really. Pretty much. Pretty yeah. much. Yeah. The boundaries pretty are pretty hard. clear. Hands, hands in our lap. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, there, I could see exceptions in terms of comforting a person who's experiencing a trauma or a difficult moment and would yeah. like a little bit of comfort in that moment. But there are huge differences between that and, you know, advancing on someone. And always, always it is up to the patient, the client, as to when and how they will be touched. I mean, just as far as putting that down there, no yeah. therapist should ever be imposing themselves physically on a, on a client. Good points, all, that you have made here. Um, now, that all being said, is there anything more to this story that we haven't covered yet? I don't believe so. I think we've laid it all out there. Um, mm -hmm. Oh, yes. Okay. So, you know, the hashtag I got out. Yes. <laughs> okay. Hashtag yes. I got out. Um, but once you get out, then what do you do as far as deprogramming? Mm. And I was mandated to go to another therapist for the court proceedings. And um, she was very nice, pleasant, did a nice job. I probably needed someone that was real low key, but she was not schooled in how to deprogram me. And she was not aware of the psychological damage that happens as a result of all those little hooks that I needed someone to help me unhook. Right. Um, so I think that remains an issue of, of who to go to when something like that really, you know, that dramatic happens of how to, um, because I was suicidal. I didn't know if I wanted to live anymore. And that was, it was almost worse after I left her than the horror of living with her. Right, right. It was a slow, slow climb out of that hole. 
And honestly, it's because I got pregnant and I forgot I was able to then fixate on being pregnant. Right. And I think that's another reason it took me 29 years is because I've been raising my children all this time. And, um, you know, not that I haven't thought about it and, and I've had much, much more therapy now. Uh, but it's a, it's a process I'm going to be unraveling until the day I don't walk this earth anymore. Yeah. It's an ongoing process for sure. And it's, and it's interesting. I don't know how you feel. I'll, I'll, I'll throw this out and you tell me what you think. But for me, it was, um, you know, when I first got out of Scientology and, and this is after decades in it, I thought, if I'm still talking about this in a year, I want somebody to stop me. <laughs> and, <laughs> and after a year, I was like, oh, yeah, no, this is going to take a little longer. <laughs> and, and, then, and it was about two or three years out that I was like, oh, yeah, this is probably a lifelong thing. So, you know, I'm going to be working on this for a while. And yeah. one of the reasons I believe for that is because at what point do you know yourself? Right. At what point can you call it quits on? Oh, yeah, I, I learned it all. I got it. I got it all. Figured. I got myself taped. I'm, I totally understand it all. Like at what really like there isn't one, obviously. Right. Spoiler alert. Um, would you agree with that? Absolutely. And I'll even say I hope there isn't that day that I feel like that I've learned it all because yeah. that's part of the fun of just the more you learn, the more you can get liberated from. And that just makes life fun and looking at opportunities of, you know, how can I attack that and be better at it than I did 10 years ago, whatever. I don't really want the journey to be over. Me too. Exactly. And that's why I think it's, if you embrace it and look at it as a, as a, as a, 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 a constructive learning process and a productive way of getting through your life, then it becomes a bit of a different attitude and flavor than, I'm in recovery and I'm always going to be carrying these chains of trauma around with me. And, and I get it. I mean, I've been traumatized. I think we all know that it's not a pleasant experience, but, but, but you have choices in how you face your future. You know, once you escape from that traumatic situation, you don't have that oppression on you anymore. Then you do get to make some choices about how you feel, how you want to approach things and learning. And and I can't imagine a recovery process that doesn't include lots and lots of learning. What? How, how has your journey been with that? It's been very similar of things started to connect. I started connecting the dots And now that I am where I am on my journey and I can look back, I see that everything was all connected. It wasn't isolated cases. There were no tangents. It was all connected. And now that I know my patterns and I'm aware, I can very much say I steer clear of anything shiny, anything (laughs) that's too good to be true. (laughs) And um, I've embraced my adoptedness meaning that I've made it more of my superpower than letting it um, do me in, I had to befriend it. And I think I befriend a lot of the things that help me just gain more and more understanding about new things all the time. Perfect. I, I, yeah. I, I think I completely agree with that. That's awesome. Um, so on that happy note, and it is good. There was, there is a, there is a happier ending here. Um, now 
under the pen name Emma Stevens, how do people find your books and work? Well, both books are on Amazon in all the formats. And then I'm also on Audible for both the books. And then as far as the social media, it's at Emma Stevens Writer for Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Excellent. Okay, good. Well, people can, I will put those links in the description here so people can find your work and look up your books on Amazon because I think they should check them out. And I'm very, very happy that uh, we had this talk today. Thank you very much for being on my show. Oh, me too, Chris. Thank you so much. You bet. All right, folks out there now, just because I have to, uh, you know, put this out there because I don't think I say it enough. And in line with what we were talking about today, if you want some uh, consultation, I I am not a licensed therapist and I am not going to give you therapy. But if you're looking for help or consultation or support or guidance or education on the topic of coercive control and cult education and and all of and, and, and maybe getting out of that situation, contact me. Hit me up. Let's talk. Uh, I can help with that. So uh, you can contact me at the email address in the comment section below or via my website, which is also linked below. Thank you very much for coming around and I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.